There we go. We're in Revelation 17. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We just prayed and I just turned the recorder thing on. We're in chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. So turn there, if you will, those of you that are here in person, if you need a Bible, there are some back on the table over there. Um, Revelation 17, little background. We are at the very tail end of the uh, tribulation. Seven and a half, seven years, the last three and a half years are coming to a close. Just to give you an idea, we're going to get into chapter 18 in a second. We're in 17 now. Chapter 19 is what we call the Hallelujah Chorus in Revelation, and then the second coming of Jesus Christ, for which the whole book sort of has been rising to this crescendo, waiting for it to happen. But chapter 17 and 18 are a unit, and they speak of the fall of Babylon. And it's sort of if you read, this is the way apocalyptic uh, prophetic literature is, it's very fluid. And by that, I mean, Babylon can mean in something, something in chapter 17 and something else in chapter 18. They go together, but they're different. Babylon in chapter 17 is the false religion, one world religion of the world that will be occurring uh, in the biggest sense ever at the time of the end. Um, and so Babylon is uh, a woman portrayed as a woman who um, commits adultery, verse two, with the kings of the world. Um, and they're all people of the world are, in, are intoxicated with the wine of her adultery. So it's sort of a one world godless religion, not for Antichrist, but Antichrist uses this religion to grow to power and then destroys this woman, uh, this false religion, in favor of his own religion where he is worshipped and, um, and seen as God, if you will. Um, so I know that you're awake. Those of you that are here, say amen. amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen, or I see those little hand puppets. <laughs> um, anyway, let's pick it up in chapter 17. Um, let's see. Let's pick it up in verse 14. They, that's the ten kings, the ten horns in the previous verse, uh, 12 and 13. Um, those ten kings give their power and authority to the beast, verse 14. They will make war against the beast. And let's see, I'm on the wrong page. There we go. Make war against the beast. Uh, sorry. Against the lamb, Jesus. But the lamb will overcome them because he's Lord of Lord and kings, King of Kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Now in verse 15, the angel just gives you a little background. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, remember this is the seventh bowl, the final of the judgments. We have the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. This is the seventh of the bowls, the, the end of God's wrath. Notice it says, come and I will show you the punishment of the great harlot or great prostitute who sits on many waters. Do you see that? Sits on many waters. Now skip over to verse 15. We did all this last week, but skip over to verse 15. The waters that you saw, the angel said to me, where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Symbolism. Sometimes they give you the sort of the play-by-play -play where you get to figure out what everything is. So she sits on many waters. She, that religion, that false religion, personified as a woman, it's not really a woman, is um, a worldwide anti-God pagan type religion. Um, verse 16, 
the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. But if you look back at uh, verse 3, the woman is sitting on the scarlet beast covered with blasphemous names, seven heads, ten horns. The woman is riding the Antichrist for a time. Um, and the Antichrist uses this false religion to come to power. But, verse 16, the, the Antichrist, the beast, and the ten horns, the ten kings that give or national leaders that give him his power, will hate the harlot or the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Not literal, but it's just portraying total destruction. In other words, um, they're going to take her for all she's worth. They'll use, like a lot of politicians do, they use religion for their own uh, aggrandizement and then cast it away. And that's what the Antichrist will do. He will probably say that all the gods or God that it pointed to is him and demand worship. So they take the wealth and they completely um, destroy that religion in favor of the one world religion becoming a religion that worships the beast, the Antichrist. Um, let's see, we already talked about that. Remember, the Antichrist demands worship, and it's either worship him or you can't buy or sell, you can't live, right? He kills a lot of people that don't worship him. So here is Satan's kingdom turning against itself. Remember, Jesus says a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Satan's kingdom was this false religion and the Antichrist and the one world government. He's going to meld the two together and say, no, worship me and divide and kill that religion. So the kingdom divided against itself is sort of a hint that it, the kingdom's not going to stand. We are, you know, weeks or maybe days away here time-wise at the end of the world coming. So uh, Antichrist doesn't need any religious help, so he gets rid of the uh, one world religion in favor of his own. Verse 17, God has put it, this is an interesting verse. If you ever wonder about the sovereignty of God, the fact that God controls everything in the universe, even when it looks like it's out of control. Look at verse 17. God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. He's talking about the 10 kings back in verse uh 12 and 13. The 10 horns are 10 kings. God puts it into their hearts. He's using these evil kings for his own purposes so that mankind can finally see what is it like if an ungodly man takes over the whole world. And of course, it's catastrophic and it's, it's ruinous and persecuting of all believers. So God put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. That's agreeing. Uh, that's amazing. By agreeing to hand over to the beast their own royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. Keep in mind something else about the sovereignty of God. It, it does not exclude the responsibility of human beings. What do you mean, Joe? I mean that these kings are evil and they will stand before God and be judged. But God has Put, use them and put it in their minds to give away their power to the Antichrist for his own purposes. In the same way, you remember that Judas betrayed Jesus. You remember that? And he's the one that God pre-chose to do so. And yet Jesus says, 
Woe to that man. It would, better, it would be better for him if he was never born. Judas is responsible for his actions, and yet it was foreordained. Jesus at one point says about Judas, did I not choose the 12 of you? And one of you is a devil. Do you remember that? I think it's in John 6. In any case, um, he uses, God uses wicked groups to execute his punishment. He did so in 70 AD. The Jews, for the most part, not all Jews, but certainly the Jewish establishment, the Pharisees, those in, in control of the temple, rejected the Messiah, rejected Jesus Christ. God used an evil empire at the time called the Roman Empire for his own purposes to come and march on Jerusalem burn the temple down, sack the city. It's a punishment against the Jews for rejecting their Messiah. God used the evil Roman em emperor at the time to do so. Um, we already talked about that. So they're going to give their power to the Antichrist, these 10 kings, until God's words are fulfilled. It's not if God's words are fulfilled, it's until. Um, do I want to do that now? Uh, it's as good a time as any to do it. As an overarching thing for all of the book of Revelation, I wanted to say this again. I said it at the beginning when we started studying this book uh, back in 1956. No, I'm just kidding, but a long time ago. But anyway, I wanted to say it again. There are four main ways to interpret the book of Revelation, and they're pretty different. And some are completely symbolic. Some say all of this pretty much already occurred before 70 AD and, and including 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and so the way that most scholars interpret Revelation, especially now, is what's called the futurist way. That's the way I'm interpreting it. Most scholars do so. What does that mean? It means that although some of these things happened in the past, almost everything we're reading about hasn't happened yet. There's never been a one world government where you had to have a mark on your hand or your forehead. There certainly has been persecution of Christians, but it's never been done before. The reason scholars do this and the reason I take the same method of interpreting Revelation is this. When you look at the, and we said this in, when we did chapter one in the introduction, when you look at the prophecies about Jesus Christ, this Messiah figure coming in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, there's a bunch of them, 330 he fulfilled just in his years on earth. Some are not fulfilled yet because he hasn't returned. My point is this, that the prophecies came true literally. Born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. Um, they will escape to Egypt, remember, to avoid the children being killed. The children being killed, that's one of them. Betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver, his hands and his feet will be pierced. Um, he will rise from the dead. He'll be from Galilee. He'll be from Nazareth. This is all Old Testament Jewish scripture. Those things are not symbolic, right? He was pierced for our iniquities or sins. He was. It's not, rabbis must have thought, what could that mean? What symbolism? They came true literally. So as much as is possible, we take this book literally. No seven heads and ten uh, ten horns and seven heads, we don't take that literally because it's explained to us the ten horns are ten nations that give him his power. And horns in the Bible are always power and political power. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that. 
um, as there are other ways to interpret the book of Revelation. Let's keep rolling. Uh, verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. I want you to notice that the word rules is present tense. That doesn't mean now present tense. It means when John's writing, he writes, the woman you saw, this is the harlot, the prostitute, the false religion, is the great city that rules currently over the kings of the earth. John writes in 95-ish AD, and the city that ruled over the kings of the earth was Rome. It was the Roman Empire. So somehow Rome will be involved in this woman and this false religion, which has led a lot of scholars to think that it has to do with the Catholic Church and the Vatican, which is located in, you guessed it, Rome. Uh, who knows? Anyway, uh, so uh, the political, economic, and religious center of the world was Rome then. It's now not the political center of the world. But Catholicism is big, and it's the religious center for Catholicism right now. So the question as we read this chapter and get into the next chapter, because we're going to see another side of Babylon, not the religious side. We're about to see the political and especially the commerce or business or money side of Babylon in chapter 18. But before we go there, my question for each of you and I and for me as well is this. Does this city reign or influence me? in my beliefs? Or am I a city of the better city, Jerusalem, a, a, a citizen of that city? Galatians 4 talks about that. Um, Babylon was often used in early Christian writings, we said this last week, as a code word for Rome. Um, so does this city influence me or, and this influence, the pagan influence, believe me, is in the schools, it's on television, it's in movies, it's in popular music, it's in magazines, it's all over the place, uh, advertising and what have you. Okay, chapter 18, I got an introduction for you. This is talking about Babylon, the side of Babylon that is the commercial economic system. Um, and so it's both a place and a system. Two examples are Hollywood and Wall Street. If you go to New York, there actually is a place called Wall Street where all the stock brokerages are and all that. But Wall Street, when someone says Wall Street, they may mean the place, Wall Street, but more often than not, they mean that economic system, the stock market, all of that money-making stuff. Same way with Hollywood. It's a small town near Los Angeles, and yet when you hear somebody say Hollywood, they just mean the whole industry. And when Christians talk about it, we talk about it in terms of it being pagan and very anti-God, right? So chapter 17 was religious Babylon. This is commercial materialistic Babylon under Antichrist. Um, let's see. So let's, with that in mind, let's dive in. Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. A cursory reading of this verse has led a few scholars, not many, to say this has to be Jesus. But the word for angel is angel, uh, angelos. It's 
um, messenger. So Jesus is a messenger? Could be. But the word another um, is the, the reason that it's not Jesus. It, is an, it means another of the same kind. Jesus is unique, the only begotten son. And he's not really ever referred to as an angel. The reason they think it might be Jesus is the angel has great authority and the earth is illuminated by his splendor. But he's coming from the throne room of God. No wonder he's still glowing, if you will. Plus the fact that he's got great authority and he's bright in splendor indicates the, the, very, the great importance of what he's about to uh, say. Verse 2, and here he comes. This is an angel, unnamed. Verse 2, with a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. You're going to see fallen repeated a lot here, and twice there in that one verse for emphasis. Babylon the great. It's kind of amazing that most kingdoms, and this is a kingdom, most kingdoms erode from the inside out or they're taken over by other armies, and it's a gradual decline. Babylon, we're going to see falls very quickly. The Bible says in a day, in one hour kind of thing. So we'll look at that in a second. So he, he shouts it out. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. This is what's called proleptic, a proleptic statement. It's a fancy word. All it means is in Revelation, they do it over and over and over, where something is said in the past tense. Babylon is fallen. And you look and you go, well, it's not fallen yet. It's proleptic, meaning it looks forward to something that's definitely going to happen. So sure that it's going to happen is John that he writes it in the past tense. It's fallen. Because God, when God says something's going to happen, it happens. It's ironic that it's Babylon the great. Great cities don't fall very easily. This city falls apart very, very, very quickly. Let's hear more about Babylon in verse 2. She using female uh, pronoun for Babylon, the city, has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. So this is after it's fallen, this is now what's left. And it's all evil, as you can see. Um, so I forgot to mention that. I'll mention it later. Um, well, actually, you know what? Let me do it now because if I don't do it now, I'll forget probably. Chapter 18, verse 1. Notice that the angels illuminated by the splendor, with great splendor. The earth is illuminated by his splendor. When the angel leaves God's um, presence, he's sort of glowing. Do you remember Moses in the Old Testament? Same thing happened. In the same way, we, although not visibly, when we spend time in his word, when we worship him, when we're in prayer, when we're in obedience, when we're studying the Bible, we, in a spiritual sense, can put that off to people in a good way, um, that we've been with the Lord kind of thing. Okay, a proleptic verse, verse 2, fallen is Babylon. So a habitation... Uh, is a place where they live. The church is the bride of the lamb and the habitation of God. God lives inside of us in the Holy Spirit. The opposite is true of this city. She, Babylon, has become a dwelling for demons. And that's a permanent word in Greek. It means from now on, that's all it's going to be is a place where fallen 
angels, that's what demons are, spirit beings live and a haunt for every impure spirit. Another way of saying the same thing. Demons are impure spirits. A haunt for every unclean bird. That goes back to the Old Testament, but it really goes back to Jesus talking about, do you remember the sowing of the seeds parable? Um, parable of the sower or of the seeds. In that parable, some of the seed falls uh, on along the wayside and birds come and snatch it up. When Jesus explains that parable in Matthew, he says that the birds symbolize Satan and demons who snatch away the word of God. So that's why unclean birds are there and a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. The whole place is unclean, unclean, evil, impure. Another word for unclean. Verse 3. I'm just reading notes here. Yeah, it's demonic to the core, one commentator wrote. Um, uh, let's see. For all the nations, verse 3, have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. This verse is sort of a, a summary of chapter 18, what really went on in this city, the commercial center. First of all, the nations were drunk with the maddening wine of her adulteries. Adulteries in Revelation is almost never sexual in in uh, meaning it means adultery in terms of spiritually when you worship anything except god you're supposed to be married to god you are committing adultery with some other thing that you worship in this case there's some demonic stuff going on but you're going to see that the thing that they worshiped was money i'll show you that again and again in fact it comes up in this verse the kings of the earth that's the leaders and the nations committed spiritual adultery with her. The merchants of the earth um, grew rich from her excessive luxuries. We're about to see a list, and they're all not necessities, they're luxuries. This is wanton, over-the-top luxuries from people getting rich from this evil world system. It's possible that when the mark of the beast comes, those that don't take it will be extremely poor because they can't buy or sell. We'll have to barter, find some way. God will provide manna from heaven. I don't know, but I know he'll provide for us. On the other hand, some scholars have suggested that as a incentive to take the mark in our new monetary digital money system, whatever it is, you take the mark, Jeff and Doreen, and we'll give you each $500,000. Or you can be poor and starve. So everybody's suddenly very, very rich. Who knows? But this verse is talking about the merchants of the earth, the business people that's bought and sold, are getting rich from her excessive luxuries. Again, it's all in the past tense. Uh, the kings committed, past tense. The merchants grew rich, past tense. Look at the first part of verse 3. All the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. Uh, this spiritual adultery is pictured as a thing that puts you in an altered state of consciousness mentally, the same way that wine does. You do things and think things if you're drunk that you wouldn't do if you're sober, if you will. Um, so uh, every Christian since the world began, since Christianity came into being in the first century, have had to heed 1 John 2. 
I want you to turn there. So go four books to the left from Revelation. 1 John 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Because this is the world system that's evil, okay, that we're reading about. Look at verse 15 of 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world, the world system against God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Either or. Can't have one foot in the world, one foot in God's kingdom. For everything in the world, now he's going to describe it in verse 16, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, or the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. That's what we're going to read about in chapter 18. The world and its desires pass pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So we have to live this life in the world and be not of the world, but live in it. The alternative that over the centuries some Christians have done is to form Christian communes. And we'll buy 900 acres in the mountains, put up fences and a big gate, and it'll just be us four and no more shut the door, as Steve said on Sunday. In other words, we'll just have our own little Christian community. We're not called to do that. Matthew 8, 28, 20 says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're supposed to be lights in a dark world. It would be nice to live in a Christian commune. I got news for you. You will. That's what heaven is. It's a Christian commune. There's nothing but Christians, Jesus, and God. That's it. No unclean thing will ever enter. We'll read that in a couple chapters. Let's go back to Chapter 18, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, you guys on Zoom, you doing okay? All right, let's keep rolling. I see the hands waving. Um, so what he's saying here is uh, that they grew rich. Um, and so there's spiritual adultery and there's great wealth and the excessive luxuries. Hidden in this verse, in this chapter, it never comes out and says it, but my, I'm going to teach you tonight that I think that for Jesus to return, every other God has to be put down, dethroned. You say, well, we know it's Antichrist and Jesus is going to destroy the Antichrist when he comes at the second coming. Correct. But gods sometimes take other forms. And the God of this world, in a sense, besides Satan, as we see in this chapter, you'll see it again and again, is money. It's wealth, it's luxury. Um, let's keep going. Her excessive luxuries, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, her being Babylon, the world system, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Punishment. Come out of her, just like Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember? Come out. I'm going to destroy the place. Lot obeys. His wife comes with him, but his wife turns around. Do you remember? Looks back fondly at the city that she loved, all that sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, and she's killed on the spot. Come out of her. That's the challenge. We have to live in this world, but not be of it. My people, that's all believers. I'm still in verse four, so that you won't share in her sins, won't receive any of her plagues, any of her judgment. 4, verse 5, this is an interesting verse, goes back to the Tower of Babel. For her sins are piled up to heaven. 
and God has remembered her crimes. If the Tower of Babel goes back to Genesis, where sinful man Nimrod formed the city of Babel. His wife started this religion thing, pagan religion. We can do it. Humanism started there. Paganism started there. They build this Tower of Babel and they pile up bricks as a way of saying, we don't need God. We will make a tower all the way to heaven. Well, what he says here is their sins is what has piled up. It's an image of them getting so high up that finally they've reached heaven. Obviously, it's symbolism there. So her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. He never forgot them, but he waited patiently until the right time. It's now the time to punish those sins. The destiny of the material world is what we're reading about here, and it will all burn. The Bible says that there are two things that you see every day that will last eternally. And everything else besides the two things I'm about to mention, it's all going to burn. There, it's not cars. It's not money. Those things are going to burn. What are the two things that last forever? People and the Word of God. Word of God lasts forever. You think we'll still have Bibles in heaven? Absolutely. And we'll look back and go, now I get it. The other thing is the people that are eternal. Now there's an asterisk next to that statement. Because the Christians that you see every day are eternal, and you'll see them in heaven forever. The unbelievers that you see every day and know, unfortunately, are also eternal. And they will live somewhere outside of the presence of God, outer darkness, hell, weeping, gnashing of teeth. You won't see them once you're in heaven because no unclean thing can enter it. But they are eternal. The people are eternal. The word of God is eternal. If we think in those terms, you will make people and God's word the most important things after God himself. Okay. Um, we're still reading. Okay, let's go back to 18 and verse. Let's see how we're doing on time. We're doing good. 18, uh, God remembered her crimes. God is fair. He has to judge every sin one way or the other. Either Christ paid on the cross for yours or these people are going to pay for theirs. Verse 6, give back to her, that's Babylon, the world system, as she has given. He's about to explain all this. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts. Look at the pride here. This is the philosophy of the, these very wealthy people in the world. I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. So this is absolute arrogance and pride. Number one, go back to verse six. Um, double, uh, th there's a law in the Old Testament called lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation. You say, oh good, can I get even? No. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. 
We never take vengeance or try to get revenge with any other human being. Romans 12 talks about that. But instead, we leave it to God who can pay people back much better. In the law of retaliation, there was required when there was theft, that if you stole 10 sheep from John Cunningham there, you would have to pay him back 20, double. So it's a way of saying pay her in full for the way she's treated herself and treated others. We'll get into that in a second. So notice that their arrogance that they claim that they will avoid suffering. Nobody's going to die. They're going to live forever. She won't be a widow. And uh, let's see, I'm not a widow. I, I, I sit enthroned as a queen. It's all about me, me, me and luxury and great, great pride of this city. So she's glorified herself as a queen, avoidance of suffering, avoidance of death, no sorrow. So God has to pay them back and he will. This is good news for you and I. You'll see that in a second. Give her, verse seven, as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. As high up as she thought it was, give her that much punishment going down. In her heart, she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I'm not a widow. I will never mourn. Great pride. Verse eight. Therefore, here it comes. Over a period of 400 years, no. In one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. So it's very, very sudden that this comes. We said that the seven bowls can come in as short amount of time, some scholars say, as one day. Some say it's a week, several uh, days, but it's not a big, long time like the first three and a half years. In one day, very suddenly, her plagues overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine, consumed by fire. Remember, I told you everything's going to burn. Mighty is the Lord God who judges her because he is more powerful. Who is great? Babylon? No, God. That's what that verse is saying. There's no comparison. Verse 9. I'm just reading notes here. Yeah. Um, The sins, verse 7, that it's mentioned there. Um, The pride and what have you. Her sins are all of those things, pride, worship of pleasure, luxury. In the, I think it was the 70s, but it might have been the 80s. If you're too young to remember this, tune me out. But do you remember a show called, TV show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach? Remember the British guy that talked really loud? And it would just show all this. Look at this. 28 million square foot house, all this crazy stuff. It was a worshiping of wealth and, you know, ridiculous over-the-top luxury. Robin Leach, uh, I think he's dead now, but if he wasn't, he'd be, he'd have a show in Babylon. In any case, very sudden, um, the burning comes up. That's the fallacy, folks, of the world system. It looked so solid. And in a second, it's all gone. God's uh, eternal security is the thing that's solid. Life can end suddenly. Anything you can lose, money, power, fame, good looks, possessions, anything you can lose, there's no security in those things. The fact that you can't lose your salvation once you're truly saved means that's where the true security lies. 
the Bible promises eternal happiness. This is momentary happiness here. Um, blessedness, life through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. So no gradual decline for them. Very quick. Uh, let's keep rolling. Time's still good. Consumed by fire. Verse 9, when the king... Now here's the reaction to this sudden destruction of this city that was a commercial center as well. When the kings of the earth, that's the political leaders, verse 9, who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Uh, they are. We're going to see in a second, they're not mourning the loss of the people in this uh, kingdom. They're mourning because of what's in it for them. I'll show you that in a second. So they committed adultery with her, uh, spiritual adultery, because God became money to them. They shared her luxury. They see the smoke of her burning. Notice in verse 10, terrified at their, her torment, they stand afar off. It's almost like if there's a huge fire, you can't get real close. The heat, the smoke, they stand far off. Thinking, by the way, well, we're safe. We're a safe enough distance. By the way, some have said nuclear weapon destroys Babylon, Rome, who knows? There are those, by the way, a few scholars that think America, the richest country in the world, is Babylon. I don't know. But uh, so they see the smoke. They weep and mourn over her. They're terrified at her torment. They stand far off and they cry, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. Anybody catch the ridiculous irony in that verse? Woe to you, what? Great city, mighty city. How great and mighty was it if it, like that, God flicked his little finger and it went away. Your doom has come. Don't invest in that kingdom. Will this fire singe your eyebrows or mine? Answer, no, we're believers. But to the extent that we're a little bit invested in it, might pinch a little bit, right? The question is, what would be your attitude and mine if we lost everything financially? All the creature comforts we've known to grow in love. When it was hot this summer, remember we had a week or so of crazy hot temperatures here in the West. Um, I can't remember who I was talking to. I was talking to somebody about air conditioning, right? that we just take it for granted, you know, yeah, or swamp cooler, evaporative coolers. But people lived here in California for a long time with zero air conditioning, right? It's become, not a, it's not a luxury, it's kind of a necessity, is it? Food, water, air, there's clothing, certain things, shelter, that are necessities. Needs versus greeds is what we're talking about here. So woe to you, great city, mighty city. It's not that great. It's not that mighty. It's very ironic. In one hour, doom showed up. Let's keep rolling. The merchants, verse 11 of the earth, will weep and mourn over her. Why? Because they feel bad for the people that died? No, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. 
See, it's all about money. It's all about profit. It's all about the bottom line. Now that what follows here, starting in verse 12, is a really, really long list. And you may ask, why did he need to put all this stuff in there? Um, and to that, I'm not sure, but they, all these things are not necessities, they're luxuries. That's the first thing. Um, these people were all in. Remember in poker, you ever hear somebody say, I'm all in? They were all in for this system. No wonder their losses are so great. So we'll look at this list in a second. There are 29 items in the list, seven different categories. The categories are precious metals and gems, clothing, furnishings, spices. Believe it or not, that was a luxury back in the day. Uh, food, animals and implements, and even, this is the weird one, people. I'll show you why that's in there as well. Uh, let's look at the list. Verse 12. No one buys their cargoes anymore, verse 11, verse 12. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen. We're not just talking clothing here. Purple, that was the color worn by kings and the very wealthy. Silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Now we're talking about furnishings, aren't we? Um, in an opulent type of palace. Verse 13, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil. These things are luxuries in that day. Of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages. Did you see the last one there? Human beings sold as slaves. You say, wait, is that a luxury? If you're that wealthy and you can afford to have slaves, it's a luxury. This is human trafficking, we call it now. It's been going on forever, right? Very, very sad. Now, the Roman Empire, one-third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. 60, listen to this number, 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire empire. Roman citizens often did not work. They had slaves to do all that stuff. They might work to sell things and make money. They had slaves for everything. It wasn't uncommon in Rome for 10,000 commentaries read uh, that I read said, 10,000 human beings to be auctioned off in a day. So human beings are being sold as chattel or as property. You think, boy, that's terrible. I got news for you going on right now in our world. Um, some of you that go to this church know Vic Lacey. He's worked for years um, dealing with people that human trafficking, and they traffic children from other countries as slaves and what have you. Um, much of what gets made in China is made by slaves. Uh, children being held as slaves. Nepal is a headquarters for all kinds of human trafficking of children for slavery, sometimes for sexual stuff as well. What a sad thing. Now you see how love of money and luxury can pervert someone's mind to the point that they think, oh, it's, it's not a human being. It's just, it's property of mine. Um, yeah. In America, 
we had a problem with slavery, didn't we? And it was, it, to a great extent, Christians who stopped slavery in America. In England, same thing. Uh, some of you know the story about the song Amazing Grace, right? Uh, look that one up. In any case, people, that's the last category. That's just an amazing thing to me. Um, slave labor and what have you. Remember that at this time, the Antichrist's kingdom, you can't buy or sell without the mark. So in a sense, everybody's got the mark of ownership. In a way, they're all slaves to him, aren't they? And uh, you also are a slave to worship him. That's demanded of him as well. Let's take our two-minute break right now and stretch our aging bodies. I'm going to turn my screen off. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right, we are back in chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. And uh, all this luxury world is just completely coming apart in a, a, a moment's time. Look at verse 14. They will say, that's the merchants, that's the kings of the earth who are mourning. Oh no, Babylon, the, the thing we invested our whole lives in, the world system is burning up. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. All of it. Isn't that amazing? They bet everything on this world. And if you know anything about the way the world goes, really poor people die and really, really wealthy people die. And it's often been said that when a wealthy, really wealthy guy dies, he might have a really nice funeral, they might put his body in a hearse, but the hearse never has a trailer hitch where he can take all his stuff with him, right? He leaves it behind. It's all so temporary. The fruit you long for is gone from you, verse 14. All your luxury and splendor, splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The most valuable metal on planet Earth is gold. And I think it's in a touch of irony and even humor, God says, oh, really? You guys value gold? We pave roads with that stuff here. It doesn't mean that that's a wealthy road. It means it's so worthless here, we just pave roads with it. Well, what's so valuable? The most valuable thing, folks, in heaven, as awesome as being there will be as awesome as eternal life will be as awesome as seeing your loved ones who have died who believed will be that's all awesome but god being with us face to face the way adam and eve was that's that's going to be the thing in heaven okay it's all all that luxury's vanished verse 14 never to be recovered there'll be no need for it in heaven right the merchants verse 15 who sold these things and gain their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. It's again, stand far off. That's twice, right? They think, well, at least I'm safe over here. I got news for these guys. They're all going to be judged as well, right? They're sinners. They were all in for this worldly system of money and what have you. Um, they will 
weep and mourn, the end of that verse says, and verse 16, and cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, again with the woe, right? Dressed in fine linen, linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls in one hour, verse 17, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. This is, goes back to Jesus in the Gospels talking about building your house on rock. And he calls himself the rock, do you remember? As opposed to building your life on sand. These people built their life on sand. It looks so solid. Wall Street and all the opulent luxury, and it's all gone in a second. And they have nothing to show for it. Um, let's see. In one hour, all such great wealth has been brought to ruin. They can't believe it. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who are in there living from the sea will stand far off. Now we're going through a sort of inventory of everybody. These are people that, that live or work on the ocean, whether they're captains of ships or those that are the passengers travel by ship, the sailors, whether in the army or whatever, or working on those ships, and all who learn that earn their living from the sea, which could be fishermen and what have you, they will explain, ex, ex, exclaim, sorry, uh, oh, they will stand far off, sorry. When they see, verse 18, the smoke of her burning, they will exp, exclaim, was there ever a city like this city. Everything was about Babylon. And they're just saying, boy, there never was a city like that. So I'm thinking of the most opulent city. Um, and Las Vegas comes to mind, maybe New York, although New York's kind of in the lately. Uh, I don't know, Los Angeles. Um, there's some cities in the Middle East that are spending crazy money with the tallest skyscrapers and what have you. As I said earlier, it's all going to burn. It's all going to come to nothing. Um, was there ever a city like this great city? Ironically, a couple chapters over, after Jesus has been here and the millennium is up, the new Jerusalem descends from heaven, the most beautiful city. We'll get there. Um, and it's interesting because it's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and strangely, 1,500 miles high. It's a cube. Strange, right? The height is the one that gets me. 1,500 miles, by the way, roughly would be San Diego to uh, Austin, Texas, Dallas, maybe, 1,500, half the way across the U.S., all the way up to Chicago, all the way over to... Seattle, and down again. Just to give you like, how big is the city, the New Jerusalem? It's awesome. But it's 1,500 miles tall as well. Which, by the way, <laughs> I don't know about this, but there's people that say it's that tall because you can fly. I don't know. <laughs> Superman, you know. Why make it so tall? I don't know. Anyway, in any case, I don't know if we can fly or not, but I'm looking forward to flying if we can. Um, let's go back to verse 18. Was there ever a city like the city? And the answer is no. But the New Jerusalem will shame it with glory. True glory, eternal glory. Verse 19, they will throw dust 
on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out woe woe to you great city that's the third time for the woes where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth in one hour she's been brought to ruin you say boy they're really milking this thing aren't they they god wants you to know that the world system those that are in it will be so shocked. How many remember that? It, not remember because you're old enough because none of you are probably. 1929 was the start of the Depression, right? And there are stories, speaking of Wall Street, of people in New York City, stockbrokers who lost everything that jumped out of windows and splat on the ground like I lost it all. Again, if you can lose it or if someone can steal it, it has really no value. If it can burn, none of those things are true about your salvation. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is eternal. That's why it's more valuable. So, okay, so what is this? What's going on here in verse 19? They will throw dust on their heads. This is a symbol of grief in the Old Testament sackcloth and ashes was another one sackcloth was a very rough like burlap clothing to feel very uncomfortable and rough when you were mourning you would put on sackcloth and you would cover your head in ashes just to look like that's how much i'm grieving look the other thing was to throw dirt on your head almost like i'm burying myself already uh old testament way of saying uh great grief kind of thing the throwing dust on the head happens when the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. How many have heard of Tyre? Tyre and Sidon? Okay. Tyre um, was a major city, um, port city, unbelievably wealthy. This is Old, uh, Old Testament, Ezekiel 26. And there's a prophecy in the Bible about Tyre, okay, where God says they will destroy, quote, they will destroy the walls of Tyre and, and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her, listen, a bare rock. Out in the sea, she will become a place to spread fish nets, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. She will become plunder for the nations. Okay, so you say, so what does this have to do with anything? Okay, Tyre was a major, rich seaport. Big buildings, lots of people. Think of New York City, okay, like that. Major port on the East Coast. Yes, I know, Washington, D.C., Miami, there's other ports. New York City is it on the East Coast. That would be like predicting New York City is going to be so scraped clean the only thing you can do there is stretch out fishing nets. So people read that prophecy for a long time and went, that's ridiculous. But you notice it says, I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. What's your point, Joe? Just this. There's a guy that comes along a couple hundred years before Jesus shows up called Alexander the Great, right? You've heard of him, right? And he has an unbelievably strong, fast army. They take over the world in record time in their day. And yet that kingdom came and went. Okay, what's your point? They come to Tyre. Now, Tyre was that great port city, but there was an island 
out off the coast. How many know the story already of Tyre? No? A few people. There was an island out there. Most of the people were on the mainland there, like New York, okay? But there's an island out there. So they, the people get wind of the fact that Alexander the Great is coming with his armies. He's going to take over Tyre. Oh, no. They don't have an army, but they have some boats, the people of Tyre. So they get in the boats, puts what they can in the boats, food and what have you, in their wealth and gold and silver, and they sail out in these boats, rowing out whatever, and they go out to the island. And Alexander the Great shows up, um, and the island is only a half a mile away from the shore. But Alexander the Great, as great as he is, has a great army, but he doesn't have a navy. Can't bring ships with you on the land. He's got no ships, okay? Also, very, very common in those days, nobody knows how to swim. Very, very few. So the people a half a mile away are out. He comes to the city, takes what he can. There's still some people there, but pretty much everybody is a half a mile away on the island going like this to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great doesn't read the Bible, but he's so, he's got such a big ego. He's so infuriated. He instructs his men because his men say, well, we've taken Tyre, let's move on. And he says, no, no, we're staying right here. What I want you to do is take every single building apart, one brick at a time, and push the debris into the ocean. We're going to build a bridge, a causeway, okay? They build a bridge half a mile long, 200 feet wide, okay? Slowly taking down all the buildings. People are still out there. But they see, oh no, what are they doing? They build a causeway half a mile out there. They scraped tire clean. Lucky guess for God? No, he knew. Tyre's getting judged, but he's using Alexander the Great to do it. They march out there because he does have an army. And now that they built the causeway, they march out, with, out there. There's nowhere for everybody to go. And he kills them and takes over the island as well. The causeway is still there to this day. And today, if you go out to the island, guess what happens there? They spread fish nets. That's it. It'll, Tyre, it will never be inhabited again, Ezekiel says. And it's been a desolate ruin ever since. Pretty amazing. Um, so in any case, uh, the point of all this, before we move on, is that there are really, cosmically, universally speaking, only two kingdoms. Well, no, there's China, there's Russia, the United States, Rome, Greece, Medo-Persia. No, there's only two. The kingdom of this world and God's kingdom. Where are you and I investing, listen, the three things we have? What are those? Time, talent, treasure, right? Time. I don't know how much time I have left, 
but I'm trying to invest my time in the kingdom of God. I have to work to earn a living sometimes, but I'm trying to invest as much time as I can in the kingdom of God. You have time. Second thing, talent. Gifts, you have the ability to do certain things. Do it for the kingdom of God. What I'm giving you is a stock tip that can't miss. You invest in God's kingdom, I will guarantee you, God will guarantee you, it'll pay off. Time, talent, treasure. Oh, now you're stepping on my toes, Joe. Want me to give money to the church? I do. Or Christian organizations, you decide. Not to me, but Christian organizations. If you uh, can imagine that you're going to um, Bali, you know where Bali is, South Pacific nation, you're going there. Um, and they have their own currency there, right? So you need to bring your dollars in and exchange them for whatever the Bali equivalent of a dollar is. Are you with me so far? In a way, you are doing that when you are investing your, and my, I am, time, talent, and treasure in the kingdom of God. You are investing in the currency of heaven. You mean there's money in heaven? No, I don't. I mean, it's a whole different thing there, right? What does Jesus say? Don't store up for yourself treasures. Remember that whole thing where moth and rust can corrode or thieves can break in and steal. Do you remember this? But store up for yourself treasures in. He's giving you a stock tip. Write this down. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Did you ever see that commercial? What was the other one? We make funny the old-fashioned way. We earn it. That was Smith Barney. Do you remember those commercials? He's giving you a stock tip for eternity. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Where? You can't lose it. Thieves don't break in and steal in heaven. Moths and rust and that kind of stuff. It's not going to burn up there. It's the ultimate investment. You're welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, the ultimate uh, investment. Okay, we did the tire thing. Um, how are we doing, you and I, living in this world but not being of it? It's hard. I like to call our generation the most, in all of human history, I think this is true, the most distracted generation. We are distracted, aren't we? Just a second, I have to check my phone. We're distracted, aren't we? We're distracted with the TV, with the phone, with the radio, with movies, with magazines, with people. Oh, somebody's calling and somebody texted me. We're distracted. Sometimes you got to go in a room, turn your phone off or leave your phone in the other room and just spend time with God in his word. That's what we're doing now. Most of you are on your phones checking email. Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, back to the text. Are you still with me? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Zoom, you doing good? I see you can. And uh, Okay, let's move on. Uh, was there ever a city like the great city? Verse 19, 18, 19, they're throwing dust on their heads. The ships became rich through her wealth. You see all the rich and wealth stuff that happens in this chapter? And one hour brought to ruin. Now here's a weird verse. I don't want you to misunderstand verse 20. Rejoice over her, 
you heavens. He doesn't mean heavens like the heavens, stars, moon, or heaven. He means you that dwell in heaven, believers. This is a command or a suggestion at least for believers to rejoice. You say, oh, wait, over the burning of all this stuff and people being judged and people dying. And listen, on the one hand, we are to always grieve when the unbeliever is going to be judged or dies as an unbeliever. I don't know if you've been to a funeral for an unbeliever. It's so different for a funeral for a believer. A believer, you can say so many great things, not just about the person, but about where they're going, that the gospel is their sure future, right? It's all glorious. That death is a graduation. Some of you attended John Lehman's funeral here. Wonderful man, got cancer, and just, it was a tough thing for him. And he got weaker and weaker, and his voice quieter and quieter, and then he passed. And that second that he passed, he became glorious. It was an absolute graduation. It was the best day of his life, I can guarantee you. If you could talk to him right now, he would say, there's no question. My death was the greatest day of my life. Nobody else can say that. These people sure can't. They're mourning and crying over the loss of all that money. Okay, so what is this rejoice over her? We ought to have compassion for the unsaved. And on the one hand, grieve that they don't believe and that their future is not good. It's in hell forever, judged by God. But let's read the verse now, verse 20. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. Do you get the feeling he wants us to rejoice? Do you feel conflicted like I do reading this verse? On the one hand, I'm sad for these people. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed, Babylon did, on believers, on you. In other words, God, who is 1,000% perfect, can't make an unfair judgment. It's impossible for him. Just like he can't lie. Did you ever know that? This, people say, there's nothing God can't do. I always say, no, there's a lot of things he can't. can't lie. can't sin can't deny himself, can't go, go against his um, nature. He has to judge all sin, and he judges righteously. And what they did to believers, he's doing to them. Some of them burned believers at the stake. That happened. Nero did it. Others have done it. They killed believers. They abused believers. They persecuted believers. And as a result, rejoiced because God had to judge her and judged her in a righteous and fair way. I'm fond of saying, this is a weird thing to say though, that no one in heaven, I'm sorry, no one in hell will ever be able to say about their judgment and why they're in hell. None of them will be able to say, well, that wasn't fair. Will they? They'll know it was totally fair, totally fair. They sinned, they paid for their sins. You say, well, I sinned too. Amen, me too. God, Christ on the cross paid for your sins. It's an amazing thing. The most loving thing ever done in the history of the world. Let me look at my notes before we move on. We already talked about that. Living in this world and not being a part of it is a challenge for all believers. It's one of the reasons going to church, yes, going physically, um, 
is important because it's more than just being in a building. There's the fellowship of getting to know other people, being accountable to other people, having other people that you know well enough to be your confessor and say, you know what, could you pray for me? I'm struggling in this area. Or can you pray for me? I'm hurting from this or whatever it may be. We are supposed to be a community Christians. You can't do that. Stay in home all the time. The Lord's Prayer. All the pronouns are plural. Our Father, my Father, no, our Father. Did you ever notice this? Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. We're supposed to be a community. There's something about people being together, worshiping together, praying together, that is more powerful than somebody praying by themselves. I'm not saying you can't pray by yourself. Of course you can. God's with you. He hears thoughts, whispers, anything. But there's something about the corporate prayer and worship of people that is infant, uh, much more powerful than being alone. And uh, so go to church. Okay. Um, no, we didn't get there yet. Okay. Uh, I'm going back to verse 20. Um, you say, but wait, didn't the believers have to give up a lot? Yes, temporarily, right? When you've been in heaven a couple billion years, how big do you think the stuff you gave up will look by then, right? It's going to be so minuscule, you won't even remember it. Um, I have a friend who was, is, and was more, going through a really rough time. And he's been saying to me, and boy, it's really been hitting home for me. Uh, I'm hurting. I'm, I'm sad, different things. But I have Christ. And so I keep saying, is Jesus enough? Of course, the answer is yes. But it's all about what you focus on, isn't it? Jesus Christ, I mean, let's, let's go back to, he calls himself the great, uh, I'm the good shepherd. You remember in John 10? That goes back to Psalm 23. The first line of which is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What, is it, what do you mean want? Some translations, look up Psalm 23 in the Living Bible or in some of the more literal translations, it says, I shall lack nothing. I won't lack anything, any need I have with God as my shepherd, he'll provide. I lack nothing. So that if you, with that attitude, you can lose everything and still be okay, right? Uh, pretty amazing thing. The reason famous people are so messed up is because they thought, if I can just be famous, I'll have it. And then they get famous and wealthy and powerful, and they still feel empty, right? Pretty amazing thing. Um, okay, so we are to rejoice that God is righteous and that he judged righteously. Romans 12, as I said, talks about never taking revenge ourselves. We leave it to God. The God of the, this world needs to be defeated because guess who's coming in chapter 19? The true God of this world, right? Not Satan, uh, Jesus Christ. God vindicated his people here. Go back to 
I think it's chapter 6. I sure hope I'm right. Go back to Revelation 6 for a second with me. I don't think it's 7. Go back to Revelation 6. Yeah, and go to verse 9. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, killed, murdered, because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained. Got the picture? These are Christians who would not worship the beast, the, the Antichrist, and were killed because of it. They called out in a loud voice. Verse 10. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. That's way back in chapter six. The answer is, verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. It's not that God is um, has anger that just flares up and he kind of goes off on people. He's very patient. But what we're reading in chapter 18 is when the patience of God is done and it's time to judge. It is the right thing to do, to avenge. And only he can do it because he's righteous. Okay, go back to chapter 18. Still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, good. You guys, I see you. All right. Amen. (laughs) Thumbs up. Okay, verse 20 we already did. God has judged her with the judgment he imposed on you. She imposed on you. Verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down. Listen to this. Never to be found again. Well, maybe they'll rebuild. And I mean, 9-11. Look at, did you see 9-11? New York City, Washington, D.C.? We rebuilt, not Babylon, not the world empire. It has to be cleared away because the Messiah is coming back to reign. So he picks up a boulder the size of a large millstone. You say, what's a millstone? Millstones were about four to five feet in diameter, at least a foot or two thick. They weighed as much as thousands of pounds. They were used to grind flower using a donkey or other animals. The point is, just as a punctuation mark, almost like an exclamation point, the angel picks up the boulder, that much weight. Do you see the power of an one angel? Kind of a, wow, weightlifting lesson here. He throws it in the sea and he says, with such violence, the great city Babylon will be thrown down, never to be, never to be found again. The picture is of that millstone being picked up. You're watching at the edge of the ocean, and it makes a huge splash and sinks, and you, you, it doesn't float, does it? You'll never see it again. It's at the bottom of the ocean. That's what he's saying with that kind of violence. Okay. Verse 22. The music of harpists and musicians pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. Wait, is there music in heaven? Absolutely. Awesome. You're going to see it in the beginning of chapter 19. But the music of harpists and musicians, in context, this is in Babylon, okay? Pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. Music is generally a very happy thing. Celebration, parties, weddings, never 
again, no more music. Sad for me, for these people as a musician. Um, no worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. Plumbers, carpenters, electricians, roofers, craftsmen, people that make jewelry and furniture, none of that. He's saying what was hustle and bustle is going to suddenly be silent. Pretty amazing. This is going to be contrasted with the beginning of chapter 19, which is anything but silent. It's loud. So no more music, pipers, trumpeters, electric guitars. No, I'd put that in. Okay. No worker of any trade. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again because nobody will be there to eat the grain if they had a millstone. The light of a lamp, verse 23, will never shine in you again. Total darkness. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your sorcery, NIV has magic spell. It's the Greek word pharmakia we read earlier. Pharmakia, pharmacy, pharmaceutical, drugs, incantations, occultic stuff, spells, all of the all of that dark, all those dark arts. Your mag by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. Darkness, verse 23. This is interesting. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will never be heard in you again. No more weddings, happy occasion. Some scholars see in that verse Christ and the church because chapter 19 is all about the bride Jesus, I'm sorry, the bride, the church, and the bridegroom, more about the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. If that's what he's saying here, then the voice of Jesus and Christians will never be heard in you again. They've all come out. There's been destruction there. Uh, either way, it's absolutely sad. Your merchants were the most important, the powerful, the movers, the shakers, the wealthy ones, power brokers. But that last phrase, by your magic spell, do you see it? The nations were led astray. That it was sort of a, a spell. Um, yeah, again, pharmakia is the word for uh, sorcery. It can, it can include drugs. They were under a spell, so to speak. Um, they seduced others using magic spells, pharmakia, drugs, potions, the occult, poisoning, witchcraft, demonic arts. They killed God's people. The, those who attack believers attack God. You say, how did you get that? Acts 9.4, do you remember? Saul of Tarsus, who is a religious, almost fanatic Jewish Pharisee, who hates Jesus, hates Christianity, hates Christians. He sees it as Jim Jones, a cult, okay, a cult. And he's trying to wipe out Christianity, thinking, I'm doing this for you, God. You remember? He's on the road to Damascus, and God knocks him down. Christ does. Who's Saul persecuting? Christians. What does Christ say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that interesting? Those people that were in the evil world system that were killing believers, persecuting believers, they were actually trying to kill 
God. God takes it personally just as you do if somebody's trying to harm your kids. Why are you persecuting me? That's Acts 9.4. They killed God's people. So it was absolutely evil. God let human government get to come to a head in a way it's never had and never has before. A worldwide kingdom, very evil, to show people that's where humanism, that's where a world apart from God leads. It doesn't get better. The age of Aquarius, no. The world is going to go downhill until Christ returns. And then everything will be absolutely awesome. Um, let's see. Do we need to go there? Yeah. Um, merchants, people. Okay, verse 24, and then we'll quit. In her, that's Babylon, the world system, the city, was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. That's the ultimate reason that God has to punish them. Yes, the sin alone would have done it, all the other stuff, but the fact that they killed and persecuted his children, he has to, to uh, punish it. So these great men, um, let's see, back in verse 23, your merchants were the world's important people. You say, yes, God, give it to these people. But do you know that in the book of James, turn there real fast. I'll try to do this quickly. If you can't find it, that's okay. Take a left from Revelation, go about seven or eight books. If you find Hebrews, you went too far, just James is right after Hebrews. Go to verse two. I want to show you where this can creep into the church. What's that? Important people, the great people. James two, my brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, comes into church, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated against yourself and, becomes judge, and become judges with evil thoughts? And then verse 5, Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? But you've insulted the poor. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Verse 6. The point is, this kind of stuff can creep into a church where they make a big deal out of somebody that's wealthy or powerful. He's a congressman. Oh, sit in the front row here, congressman so-and-so, Miss Pelosi or whoever. Anyway, um, uh, she's not up for re-election, so we can talk about her. Um, the point is, it can creep into the church. Churches love people that are big donors, and they do special favors for them, and that's not good. All are equal at the foot of the cross. Let's close with prayer. Um, we'll wrap up this chapter with a few thoughts next week, but then we're going to dive into chapter 19 and the second coming of Jesus Christ. If it's raining, if it's snowing, if it's a hurricane, you should still show up. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend in your word, God. Wow. The world system that looks so um, indestructible falls so quickly, Father. And so 
Make us aware of where we're investing our time, our talent, our treasure. Is it for your kingdom, the best investment we can make for the future forever? We seek your glory, God. We don't do it to get the aggrandizement ourselves. We seek your glory and the glory of your son, Jesus. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds. Thank you for them, God. And we can't wait for your second coming, Lord Jesus. Whenever that is, we can't wait. In the meantime, use us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. And those of you on Zoom, thank you guys. God bless you. See you next Tuesday, God willing.